the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Steve Arnabern here, and I am so glad you've joined me. I'm filling in on the Frank Sontag Show today, and I'll be back uh, doing this tomorrow also. I want to talk to you about making a difference. I think it would be important. You know, uh, this week I, I had on Fred Stoker, who called by God, write six books. I got to write them with him. And really, back in the days, over 25 years ago, when people were not talking about pornography and uh, they were just using it, but they weren't talking about it much, uh, certainly not not to the degree uh, that it is talked about today. We didn't realize back then, literally, that more men coming to church, the, the faithful ones, the ones that are in church, more men read the Bible in the past week then I mean, they looked at pornography than read the Bible. More men looking at pornography than reading the Bible. And those are the guys that are in church. And Fred made a huge difference there. Talked to Jim Burns this week about parenting and how we are the ones that can make the big difference with our kids. It It's not hopeless. We need to do it. And I talked with Lila Rose. And Lila, as a young child, just fell in love with babies and wanted to give the unborn a voice, and she has made a huge, huge difference in that area. All of us can make a difference. Maybe it's one person's life. You know, one of my favorite uh, stories is about Mordecai Ham, who was so discouraged people weren't showing up in numbers like he liked to hear him preach. And in a moment of discouragement, He's back at his hotel crying because hardly anybody came. But one of the people that came to Christ that night was Billy Graham. So you could change one person's life and make a huge, huge difference from that perspective. But I've got a special guest right now who has made such a difference in this world. He's one of uh, my favorite people. I love to be with him. In fact, uh, we, we just got back from Ireland together playing some golf with some other great guys. Uh, Ralph is the chairman, and he's the CEO of Century Strategies. It's a public relations and public affairs firm, offices in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. He was a senior advisor to George W. Bush's presidential campaign. I mean, he's, um, he's well, he is head of, uh, or was head of the Faith Advisory Board for uh, Donald Trump. And he is the executive director of the Christian Coalition right now and is a tremendous, tremendous uh, leader and influencer in this world. And I'm just thrilled to have uh, have him on the program. Ralph Reed, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much, Steve. Pleasure to be with you. Now, Ralph, I, I, as we've discussed, I've seen you on Bill Maher and, and all these other <laughs> shows that are uh, – that are really tough shows, but you can relax today. 
I'm, I'm um, <laughs> you know, I'm just going <laughs> to ask you nice things. But we, we just got back. We went to Ireland together. We played golf together with some other men. Truly a great trip from the perspective, Ralph, I think, of how open men are versus what a lot of people think, that they never share anything. But these men, they were sharing personal things in their life. Did you Did you feel that way? Yeah, I did. It was uh, it was a tremendous time of, you know, fellowship with some great men who were, you know, desiring to be uh, the husbands and the fathers um, and the disciples of Christ that, that we all believe God has called us to. And, you know, the longer I'm in this journey, Steve, the more I believe that, you know, um, you know, Christianity, you can't be a lone ranger. you got to be in fellowship and accountability, and you mm-hmm. have to be uh, taking that journey with other people. And uh, just appreciate your ministry so much and appreciate the guys we were with, because that's what it's all about, is walking it out, you know, together. And uh, we're not supposed to do this alone. Yeah, amen. So true. Well, I want to talk to you about uh, a lot of things today. But I, I I love the story about you and Pat Robertson and how you were working on your Ph.D. and he just kind of jumped into your life. Would you share that? Because I don't think a lot of people know that story. Yeah, I was, um, of course, a big fan of Pat's for many years, but I didn't know him. And at the Bush 41 inaugural in Washington in 1989, at a youth inaugural event, I was coincidentally seated next to Pat at a dinner that he was hmm. the keynote speaker of. Hmm. And I had never met him before and didn't have any reason to believe I'd ever meet him again. And, and um, you know, being a veteran of politics myself, even at that young age, I thought it was uh, incumbent upon me to explain to him all the things that he had done wrong when he was running for president. and the ways that i thought he could have been more effective and i i think you know pat was a guy who kind of you know he he liked somebody telling him the truth and he he liked my precociousness i think and when that inaugural event was over he said come here i want to talk to you for a minute and um I followed him into the banquet kitchen where the banquet waiters were literally going back and forth with trays clearing the tables. And he Mm -hmm. said, listen, you know, keep in mind, Steve, this is January of 1989. Mm -hmm. And he said, listen, nobody knows this yet, but Jerry Falwell's getting ready to close down the moral majority. And I ran for president. I got a lot of supporters out there, got a lot of donors, uh, an activist that I mobilized. I don't want it to go to waste, and I'm getting ready to start uh, the next big thing, and I want you to come and work for me. Now, you know, we had known each other at this point for a grand total of about two hours. <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, I, I can't do that. He said, why not? And I said, well, I'm, I'm writing my dissertation at Emory University. I'm finishing my Ph.D., and I'm on a fellowship. And I accepted this fellowship on the condition that I would finish the program. And he said, okay, well, why don't you just send me a memo as to how we ought to build the organization, and then I can just kind of get your ideas that way. <laughs> so I sent him the memo, and I never heard another word. And then in September of 1989, my phone rang out of the blue, 
and I was sitting in my little apartment. I was literally, Steve, writing the last page of my dissertation. Wow. I'm writing the final page. And the phone rang, and it's Pat. And I just figured I'd never hear from him again. Yeah. And he said, listen, I got your memo, but I was busy doing some other things. I liked some of your ideas. I'm having a meeting in Atlanta with a lot of other Christian leaders, and I'm ready to go. I'm going to start this thing. And he said, you're in Atlanta, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, why don't you come to the meeting? (laughs) So I walked into the meeting. You know, I'm 28 years old. I look like I'm about 15. (laughs) And there's D. James Kennedy and Tim and Beverly LaHaye and, you know, Jerry Falwell and all these other big leaders and me. There you are. They were trying to figure out what I was doing there, and I was trying to figure out what I was doing there. And at the end of the meeting, Pat walked over to me and said, well, in the middle of the meeting, he turned to all of them and said, hey, I want to introduce everybody to Ralph Reed. He's going to be the new executive director. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And that was how I found out that I was the first executive director of what became the Christian Coalition. Oh, so my goodness. At the end of the meeting, he said, hey, you want to just jump on the airplane with me and fly back to Virginia Beach? And I said, well, I probably ought to go home and tell my wife that I'm having a career change. And he said, yeah, I think you probably <laughs> ought to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Very good idea. Oh, my goodness. And, and so that was the beginning of really just being thrown into a movement to try to shore up and and to strengthen solid conservative Christian values, and it was a it was a powerful organization. I mean, you guys, you made a difference. There's just no question about it. And and you're still doing that. I mean, you're still influencing folks. And what I love is that nobody can ever accuse you, Ralph, of you know this. Oh, he's an uninformed or or a naive Christian, doesn't know what he's talking about. You really do. You win that credibility battle. And and you're so into the issues that matter. So I've got a question for you. Uh, one yeah. of the things that has always been um, interesting to me and sad and puzzling is how uh, a small sliver of folks— who don't believe anything like we do, they can they can control the agenda, and how big groups like Christians can end up on the sideline. I don't know of any liberal group that meets every week <laughs> to encourage each other and, and like we do in churches, and yet right. it's it seems like uh, we we're being neutered right and left. Of our power, so I just wanted to hear a little bit of your thoughts on that of how a small group can override this solid conservative value that so many people have. Well, you know, it's a great question, Steve, and it. it what's funny is, you know, you and I talking here, um, thirty-two years after I wrote that memo. That was basically the opening of the memo that I wrote to Pat which was we have this strange dichotomy Mm. in American civic life where, you know, you could debate what the numbers are, but it's kind of irrefutable that the lowest number you would put on the number of evangelical born-again Christians 
in the United States would be 40 million. That would be the lowest. Yeah. Some estimates would go as high as 60 or 70 million. You know, when you add to that, uh, you know, the roughly 12 to 15 million frequently mass attending pro life faithful Roman Catholics, it's the largest single constituency in the electorate. Yeah. It's a minimum of 30% of the vote, and it may be 35 to 36% of the vote, again, depending upon how you count it. And, and yet, at many times, their influence on policy is inversely proportional to, the num- to their numbers. Right. Whereas, if you look at the same numbers for, say, the gay community, it's, you know, 2, 3, 4% of the electorate. Look at the power they have. The, the labor unions, they're roughly, you know, unionized households, probably 13, 14% of the electorate. Look at the power they have. Feminists, maybe 5%. And, and the answer to your question as to why is because, and it's really what we tried to get out at the Christian Coalition, it's what I do today at Faith and Freedom Coalition, it's not about the sheer numbers. Uh, you can take, there are political scientists that have argued that 2% of the electorate properly mobilized can accomplish almost anything. But what 2%. you have to do is you have to get them not only uh, turned out in record numbers, Steve. It isn't just voting. It's also financial clout, giving, mm-hmm. giving to candidates, raising money for candidates. And it's also influencing legislation and contacting elected officials on an ongoing basis so that those elected officials become friends and intimates and people that you know. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I do, Steve, when I travel around the country and I speak in churches, is I will ask people to raise their hand if they can name the President of the United States. And obviously every hand goes up. Then I say, how about Vice President? And then some of the hands go down. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, name both your senators, U.S. senators, name your congressman. More hands go down. Then name your state senator. Half the hands go down. Hmm. Name your state house member. Name your school board member by name. By the time I get done, there's five hands left. Now, Steve, if you don't know the name of your congressman or your state legislator or your school board member, how are you going to be able to influence them? You not only have never talked to them, never written them, never emailed them, you don't even know their name. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says my people perish for lack of knowledge. Knowledge is power, not numbers alone. It's knowledge and engagement. That's the answer. Yeah. So, so engagement, and when you're engaged, you come to know things that you didn't know. You listen. You're aware. But so many Christians that I talk with, it, it's, it's almost like they think it's anti-Christian to get involved in politics. It, it's, they don't understand it, and they think it's messy. And, and one of the things that I hate is hearing that, well, I couldn't totally support either candidate, so I didn't vote at all. And, you know, I just, I really believe that 
you know, there's no perfect candidate, but you really ought to pick one that you think is better than the other. Why would you let the worst one get get elected? And I think I even shared this with you. You know, if there were if I had a choice between a guy that that was going to kill 10 people every day and another guy that was going to kill 20 people every day. Well, I'm not for killing 10 people every day, but I'm going to vote for that guy and save the lives of 10 people a day over the other guy. It just seems like that reasoning would stand true for most people, but it doesn't. They they won't vote if they don't 100% like the person and everything that they stand for. Yeah, and I think part of that is is um, it, it reflects a need for a growing level of maturity about realpolitik and about what the realities of politics are for some in the faith community. Um, Ronald Reagan was known for saying that an 80% friend is not a 20% enemy. They're mm. an 80% friend. Yeah. And in politics, you have to vote for people sometimes that you don't agree with 100% of the time, but maybe you agree with them 85 or 90% of the time, whereas the person they're running against, it may be zero. You may find yourself in coalition on a legislative or a policy issue where you don't agree with members of the coalition on anything other than that one issue. Yeah. So, for example, my organization, Faith and Freedom, worked on criminal justice reform in order to have more biblical forms of redemptive justice rather than just locking people up in prisons and throwing the key away. That's not really a biblical model of redemption. We believe in things like mentoring programs and high school equivalency diploma programs and work training programs and drug and alcohol treatment programs to get people's lives turned around, to get them to be uh, more productive members of society. And some of the people we worked with on that were far on the left, people like the ACLU and people Hmm. like uh, uh, Van Jones, who was an official in the Obama administration. We didn't agree with them on anything but that issue. Hmm. And I think part of what you're talking about also came into play with uh, uh, Donald Trump's candidacy, uh, both in 2016 and 2020, but probably more so in 2016, where people struggled with some of the uh, his personal life, yeah. some aspects of his personality, and the fact that he had uh, previously been pro-choice. And, and my argument at the time is, look, I'm not asking you to vote for the lesser of two evils, I'm asking you to vote for the greater good. If you have a vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court caused by the untimely death of Antonin Scalia, and either Hillary Clinton's going to appoint another Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or Donald Trump is going to appoint a conservative, I'm not asking you to vote for the lesser evil. I'm asking you to vote for the good of a conservative justice. I'm asking you to vote for somebody who will be pro-life. And so I think there is some... um, you know, some challenges in that area where people think that if I don't agree 100 percent, then I'm compromising if I if I vote for that person. Uh, but but I think the opposite is the case. Yeah, I do, too. Well, we had um, Lila Rose on 
I had her on this week, and she's such a champion. Oh, she's great for life. And I'm just uh, curious: can you, if let's just say the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, and I have no idea whether that would happen, but but talk about what that would do, what would happen. I mean, abortion wouldn't necessarily be uh, illegal everywhere, as I understand it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I, I'm reluctant to, um, you know, to predict the outcome of Supreme Court cases, much yeah. less what a majority opinion might be. But what we do know is that when the court last acted on an abortion case. It involved a Louisiana law that required that any doctor who was working at an abortion clinic also had to have have hospital visitation privileges. Yeah. Meaning they couldn't just be some garden variety doctor. They you know, you couldn't just have some butcher like a gosling in Pennsylvania. Right. It was a way to ensure and protect women. And the court struck that law down, and that decision was a 5-4 decision with Roberts voting for the majority. Hmm. Well, since that decision, Steve, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has gone off the court, and Amy Coney Barrett has gone on. So that five-vote majority, even with Roberts voting with them, is now only four votes. Hmm. There should be. There should be. We don't know. Even without Roberts, there should be five votes that are pro-life. Now, will they overturn Roe? I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. Yeah. But whether it's this court or a future court, it is most likely that we would return to status quo antebellum. That is to say, what America looked like before 1973 where states that wanted to protect innocent human life in the womb could do so, and states like California and New York that at the time had the most liberal abortion laws in the country could also do so. Okay, Ralph, I've got to go to a quick break here. Okay, got to go to a break. We'll pick that right up after this. Ralph Reed is with me, Steve Arterburn here. Please stay tuned. We'll be back right after these messages for more here on KKLA. Steve Arterburn here with my special guest, really special guest, uh, just somebody I, I really love, care about, and respect, Ralph Reed. Ralph, you were, I had to interrupt you for that hard break there, but you were saying that the, if for some reason the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, it goes back to the state to decide. Is that, isn't that what you were saying, or did I miss that? Oh, wait, I better punch this little button here. That would Ralph. Be, I think that would be the conventional thinking. I think it it may even be more likely that, as was the case with the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision of 1992, that they sort of trim, revise, and revisit Roe. But mm-hmm. the larger point is this, Steve. From the time Roe v. Wade, became the law of the land in January of 1973 until today. The pro-life side has been winning 
and has been on the offense, and the pro-abortion side has been losing and has been on defense. And I personally think it's only a question of when and not if Roe v. Wade goes the way of Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson. Well, I, I hope that that is so true. And, and I've said this before. You know, before sonography, before you could see the heartbeat and, and see the limbs and all of these things on a little tiny fetus, okay, you could get away with saying that's just a, a group of cells and don't worry about it. But the science, I mean, when you see this in the womb, you can't help but know, as I did, I paid for an abortion, that you can't help but no, this this is a human being. This isn't just something that's alive. It is a life just like us. And and I I have to believe that that has to have an impact on people as they, you know, put their head on the pillow. The lie that well we don't want to bring a child into the world because uh, we don't want them to be uh, abused. Such a such a stupid lie because there's so many options. Uh, that a person has with with the child that so the child won't be abused but but it really is i hear these stories all the time of of people that are head of planned parenthood they become friends with the pregnancy center leader and all of a sudden they're resigning because they see the reality that's there and i'm glad that you see it too what is the basic flaw with roe versus wade as you see it well, I think I think the flaw was really twofold. You know, number one, it, it was taking a constitutional right to privacy, uh, you know, that, that ultimately finds its origins in our protection in the Bill of Rights from illegal search and seizure, and, you know, imposing it upon the whole area of uh, contraception and abortion contraception in the case of the Griswold decision, and then that kind of migrated over into abortion in the case of Roe v. Wade. Uh, so, so essentially what the court discovered and what they said was a penumbra or a shadow of constitutional ruling, they created a new right that the founders never envisioned, it is not found in the Constitution. It's not found in the Bill of Rights. It was invented out of whole cloth, uh, and, and that is the right to an abortion. Um, the second mistake, even greater in my view, uh, was to not leave that decision to the states and to impose it on all 50 states by an act of judicial fiat. And what happened was the pro-abortion movement, and the feminist movement attempted to accomplish by judicial edict what they could not accomplish at the ballot box, mm -hmm. what they could not pass through state legislative chambers, and what they could not win in the court of public opinion. And they won the battle, but they've lost the long-term struggle because this will never settle on the American conscience. And in the absence of real political support, which they're losing every day. State legislatures every day are passing new restrictions. My home state of Georgia passed a bill banning abortion after a heartbeat can be detected in, a, in an unborn child. 
That's roughly at around six weeks gestation, and this is only going to continue, Steve. And they threw the left through $500 million at targeted state legislative races in 2020 to try and flip these legislatures to prevent the passage of these pro-life laws. And they not only failed, they actually lost two state legislative chambers. So the momentum is on the side of life. Well, that's exciting to hear that there that there is this not just an opinion change, but there's actually an ability to win over all of that money. I mean, you know, when you're talking a half billion dollars, you're talking about real commitment to change. Oh, and yeah. That's not working. And that kind that. of money dropped into a state legislative race, you know, two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars at a time generally makes a real difference and they came up with a goose egg Mm -hmm. so ralph i you have a special calling from god and and i've i've just i've seen the impact of that over the years were you did you ever have a moment where you said okay god i'm i'm i hear you or did you just keep dancing and and then you find yourself with a life like this in front of you. How, how did it happen that you understood God's calling on your life? Well, I had gotten involved in politics at a very early age. I volunteered on my first campaign when I was 14. A friend of my family's ran for Congress. I was active in the college Republicans. I was state chairman of the college Republicans in Georgia. I was co-chair of the youth effort for Ronald Reagan in 1984. So, you know, I, you know, I knew Lee Atwater. I knew Ed Rollins when (laughs) I was just a young kid. Those names may not mean anything to, you know, some of your audience today, but they were the guys who ran Ronald Reagan's reelection campaign in 1984. So I was involved even at a national level at a very young age, but not everything I saw about politics was appealing to me. Um, there was a lot that I didn't, you know, think was necessarily a healthy, uh, lifestyle. Um, frankly, I, I'm still of that view to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was why I went to graduate. I prayed about it and I sought the Lord and I thought he was calling me to an academic career. Um, that's why I pursued a doctorate in history. I was going to be a college professor. And, uh, you know, probably get married and raise babies in a sleepy little college town somewhere and teach teach history. And then when mm. this thing happened with, uh, uh, you know, Pat hiring me to, to launch the Christian Coalition with him, you know, within five years, we were one of the most prominent political organizations in the country, and Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House, and we had helped elect the first Republican Congress in 40 years, and we were running people for school board all over the country and turning out tens of millions of voters. And at a certain point, it was kind of like being strapped into the cockpit of a of an F-35, you know, jet. You know, it was yeah. kind of I it it exploded so quickly and became so transformational that at that point, you know, um, it it was. Uh, it was hard to get off, and I, it mm. was pretty clear to me that, that God, for him to have blessed me in the middle of that like that, and um, 
and and I'm not I'm certainly open to doing something else, but I think there's a wisdom if the Lord has blessed you in in something like that to to be faithful and stick with it. I I totally agree. I've got a couple of minutes with you here, and tell people. I mean, you've kind of done it in, in another way, but tell people what you want them to do to make a difference in our nation and local community. What is it that you you think people could do to make a difference? Well, what I want people to do is to is to live up to a biblical model of citizenship. Mm. You know, I was reading in my daily Bible reading uh, yesterday morning in the book of Acts where, where Paul, the Apostle Paul is, is arrested in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel, and when the Roman centurions uh, tie him up and get ready to, to, to basically whip him and scourge him, he turns around and he says, is it legal for you to do this to a citizen of Rome? And they immediately untie him, they treat him with respect, they don't allow him to be tried in a kangaroo court, and he ultimately appeals his case all the way to Caesar. And Paul carried the gospel of Jesus Christ all the way to the throne of the most powerful man on the planet. Why? Because he defended his rights as a citizen. Hmm. And I want people to understand that we, as Bible-believing Christians, need to do the same thing today. And we have a different set of rules and a different set of rights and obligations, and I think it means being registered to vote, being informed and educated, voting, giving funds to candidates, supporting candidates, and influencing legislation by contacting elected officials. Got to go to a break. Thank you, Ralph. God bless you. Thank you, Steve. Steve Artibernier, Ralph Reed is my guest, founder and chairman of Faith and Freedom Coalition. It's a pro-family public policy organization. Also, got one of the most amazing wives ever, Joanne. They've got four kids, two grandchildren. They reside in Atlanta. And Ralph, uh, you you told us, you know, what we can do, and and I really do can't imagine somebody living in this uh, country and not registered to vote and getting involved, and you've certainly inspired us to know more. I think that example of Paul is incredible. I'd like you to close out with just uh, telling folks what you're most hopeful about or what is most encouraging on the horizon as you see it in your area. Uh, what can people uh, look forward to in your thinking? Well, I'm, I'm very encouraged and very hopeful, because first of all, I believe that uh, God has a plan for America. I don't think he's done with this country. And historically, midterm elections for the party holding the White House uh, have an average of 26 House seats that are lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Republicans only need a net gain of, I think, six or seven House seats to regain the House. Mm. Uh, the Senate is very much in play. It's 50-50. If we do our job and we turn out the vote that we're capable of seeing, uh, we're going to have a very good 2022. Mm. And uh, people need to keep the faith. Uh, they need to understand that um, that 
citizenship is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You don't you don't check out because you have a temporary setback like 2020. You stay in it. And uh, if you look at historical trends, you look at Biden's approval rating falling by roughly 10 points in just the last few weeks, in part because of COVID and other things, the runaway spending. I'm not a prophet, but I believe there's a correction coming. And people need to pray for this country. They need to be engaged. They need to be active. And they need to keep the faith. Amen. Well, Ralph, I I just want to encourage you. I I know sometimes it has to be frustrating and discouraging, but you're a great inspiration to me and a lot of others. Thanks for what you do. And thanks for uh, letting me be with you here. And uh, I look forward to seeing you down the road. Same here, Steve. Love and appreciate you and your ministry. And uh, thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, Ralph. Ralph Reed, I'm, I just think that we have an obligation to sign up, to register, to learn as much as we can, and to go and, and vote the way we, we think it's going to make this country better. You know, I, we have a 23-year-old, and so many people his age say things like, oh, you know, well, I'll go live somewhere else and do something else. And he's worked in museums all over the world, and he's just so confident that there is not a better country than the United States of America. And I believe that to be be true. And, yeah, there are some discouraging things, but there is great, great hope. Uh, God is is not dead. God is not disinterested and uh, God is not distracted he knows what's going on and uh, I think we're going to see some great things happen in this country I believe that one of the things I also believe is that the strength of our nation depends on the strength and the health of our churches and I wrote a book toxic faith about how churches become poisoned And they become poisoned because the leader doesn't do the job that they've been called to do. And so if you have any influence on the church where you attend, well, one one way you do have influence, if it's not a great church, then, you know, maybe there's a better church. If you can't help initiate change in that church, maybe there's another church that would be better to attend, better to take your kids to. But we we really do need to look at what churches need to do. And, you know, in California, you see headlines all the time, uh, problems in churches, people, you know, embezzling money or abusing someone, all sorts of things like that. But there are other churches that are just absolutely doing an amazing job with servant leaders who get up every day and they just want people to know more about Jesus and they want to build them up in the faith. And those are the folks that are so, so honorable. And we need to pray for them. We need to encourage them. Those are the churches that we need to attend. But, you know, I was uh, preaching at a pastor's uh, appreciation lunch. And when you're preaching to preachers, you, you really got to be on your toes. And I asked the the folks that were running the uh, appreciation luncheon, I said, what is uh, the big problem here? 
with pastors in this area? What are they struggling with? And just like that, the person says, well, it's really simple. They don't want to offend anybody. They want their church to grow. They don't want to offend anybody. And so some of the big issues that they need to be talking about, they're not talking about. I said, you, perfect. <laughs> you got the right guy. Because I'm, I'm the teaching pastor at a church. I think three years ago, we were the third fastest growing church in America, and we talk about problems. And our uh, senior pastor, lead pastor Steve Poe, is a champion for bringing the truth with grace, love, and mercy, but the truth about every tough issue. So you don't have to avoid or dance around it. But anytime a church starts to to adjust and shift the biblical standards to accommodate the folks in the culture or the current thinking of the day, that's a church that needs it needs a change. Theology should be the same. And if it's not the same, you need to change people. And anytime the the gospel is attached to some kind of uh, you know political movement or, or or something, you know that, that it's, it's a different thing. As Christians, we need to vote the best way we see fit to to vote. We're not going to agree on everything, but politics that's one thing. The church, the body of Christ, that's something else. And I I so honor those politicians working a really, really tough system and keeping their faith. And, and, you know, where I see a great church and a great pastor, I see humility. I don't see this celebrity worship going on. I see service. And that's what we, we need to be drawn to because that's what Jesus did. Puts on an earth suit, comes down here in the form of a baby and shows us how to serve, to love and to serve. You know, a lot of people struggle in their church, struggle in their marriage. You have to ask, is the struggle between two people who are trying to act like Jesus or two people who have absolutely, totally forgotten who Jesus is? We need to get back to our faith. We need to get back to the foundation of our faith so that we are sharing true truth. It transforms people, transforms churches, cultures, and countries. Well, as I uh, close out this hour, I want to remind you we do have a parenting seminar October the 2nd. It's online. You can find out about it at kkla.com forward slash new life. And then we've got uh, some great things on living without freedom, an audio download with Max Lucado on fearless living, and a tip sheet, 10 tips on living without fear that I did put together for you. I'm on New Life Live. It's midday on this station and many others. I would love for you to join us. We try to help people with their problems from a biblical perspective. And uh, I I just hope if you've never listened that you will. And then uh, finally, thank you for listening to me. God loves you. God is for you. 
God, one of the greatest passages is that God is rich in mercy. If all of us could just understand the mercy of our God, the richness of that mercy, he, he is drawing us to him. Atheists, agnostics, Christians, we're all drawn to him. He wants us in his life. And he has probably, if you look back, gone to some great lengths to get your attention to try to help you see the need for him and the benefit, the extraordinary benefit of living in his love. Life is not easy. This is not the Garden of Eden. We're outside and we're going to have struggle. And if we can ever help you at New Life in any way, you call us at one 800 new life also new book uh, just out a month ago the soul of the hero the last book that i wrote with dr dave stoop you can find out about that the soul of a hero at kkla.com forward slash new life so grateful for christian radio so grateful that there is the voice of truth that you can hear in the privacy of your car or home it's just you and whoever's talking and i have loved this time with you And I'm going to be back here for another day tomorrow, filling in. And I hope you'll join me then uh, tomorrow. And uh, God bless you.